Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. We are in our next mini-series where we're going through politicizing the Bible, this amazing, fantastic book by Scott Hahn and Benjamin Weicker, looking at several Enlightenment figures and how they influenced the way that people viewed the Bible and how biblical scholarship changed over time through the Renaissance and into uh, this the modern age, into the postmodern age. So, you know, we've been going through a few different characters so far, Machiavelli, huge punk. If you haven't listened to that podcast, listen to it. He's a, he's a tool. I don't like him. Um, in, all, in all charity, I guess. Um, but he's a tool. Um, but anyway, uh, and then we have Marsilius um, and Occam the, the week before that. Um, Marsilius, he's a punk. Occam, not really. He's kind of an accidental punk. I think he was genuinely trying to search for truth. Um, he just goofed real hard on his nominalism and all that good stuff. And it's really important that we remember Occam uh, and nominalism uh, before we dive into this week's dude, which is Martin Luther. So Luther, you know, I think, I mean, most people have heard of Martin Luther, John Calvin, the reformers. Uh, they're the two heavy hitters when it comes to the Reformation. Um, this week, we're looking at purely uh, Martin Luther. And we actually are going to do a two-part kind of segment on Luther because we're, what we're going to do is this week we're just kind of kind of set up who he is you know kind of a backstory of, of you know his situation the political situation going on at the time um, a bit of his philosophical you know stances and kind of how that uh, he viewed some parts of scripture then next week we're actually going to be looking at certain key passages in like Romans Galatians for example that he looked at and we're going to present the, the scripture that he translated in certain ways. And then we're going to present the Catholic approach, the authentically Catholic approach to the interpretation of the scripture that kind of got him his sola fide, sola gratia, um, sola scriptura approach um, when it comes to all these things. So it's a bit of a two-part series or two-part segment, I should say, on Martin Luther. Um, and uh, just because he's just really important, it's really important that we understand Luther um, for if, if a lot of reasons. One, because we have to understand that so much of the Reformation, not all of the, not all the Reformation, but so much of the Reformation was, was kind of kickstarted from his approach to scripture, from his uh, philosophical nominalism. Um, obviously, uh, John Calvin being from a different branch slightly, um, but Anyway, I digress. We're going to dive into Luther today because he's, he's just a really important figure. And especially if you're a Catholic in America right now, um, you know, you might know Lutherans, right, from Martin Luther's school of thought. Um, but also a lot of non-denominational churches, you know, they tend to be one of two things. They either tend to lean Lutheran or lean like Calvin, Calvinist when it comes to their soteriology and their, their study or their view of salvation and of grace and all that kind of good stuff. So it's just important for us to know uh, about this guy, right? And not just dismiss him offhand as some some dude who screwed things up. So uh, Luther, he was born uh, in Germany in, on November 10th, uh, 1483. So a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, so he, he was born into um, not like an 
aristocratic family, but by no means a poor family. Kind of, we can think of them like as an upper middle class family. And uh, his, uh, him and all along with all the siblings uh, were sent to study at schools and at good schools. And so, you know, this was important for us to know because Luther was really influenced by the alchemist school of thought, namely nominalism, right? So uh, just a brief recap into nominalism. So nominalism is this philosophy that was kickstarted by Occam, right? Um, and it's and it wasn't just Occam, there's other guys too, but Occam is the guy, this Occamist school of thought was who really influenced Luther. And so what does nominalism say? Well, is a, is a few things, and, and, and to be fair, for Luther, even in Luther's time, there was kind of a, a, a spectrum of nominalism, right? Um, but kind of in broad strokes, um, we have the we have this quote that I want to share with you guys on the differences between the Via Moderna and the Via Antiqua from Luther himself. So this is what Luther says um, about uh, these two schools of thought. He says this. Terminus was the name of one sect of the university to which I, too, belonged. They take a stand against the Thomists, the Scotists, and the Alpertists, and were also called Occamists after Occam, their founder. They are, they are the very latest sect and the most powerful in Paris, too. So the school of Paris was like the school at the time, right? Uh, the dispute was over whether humanitas and words like it meant a common humanity which was in all human beings, as Thomas and others believe. Well, say the alchemist or terminist, there is no such thing as a common humanity. There is only the term homo, or humanity meaning all human beings individually. The same way a painted picture of a human being refers to all human beings. Uh, so what's all I have to say? All I have to say is for nominalism, there is no such thing as universals. Right, there is no such thing as a universal nature to things. Everything is particular. Right, there is no universal idea of tree, uh, of human being, of of humanitas for Luther, uh, of humanity. There is no human nature. We don't. There's no shared human nature. Right, there, and therefore, therefore, if there is no such thing as universals of nature, there can be no divine nature. Right. Um, and because there is no divine nature, everything is the way it is simply because God willed it to be so, right? If, it, if God had willed murder to be moral, it could have been if God had willed it that way. We would say the reason that murder is not moral is because it's contrary to both the divine and our human nature, right? It's, it goes against everything that we are. And so uh, Luther in his school and his formation you know, he had to study the ancients. He had to study Aristotle and uh, Plato and all these guys. And he really, really, really hated Aristotle. He, he even says this. It's another quote from Luther. Should Aristotle not have been a man of flesh and blood, I would not hesitate to assert that he was the devil himself. Right? So, yeah, he really doesn't like Aristotle. Um, and so, obviously, it makes sense because if he's nominalist, right, the, our idea of human nature, of universals, comes from the Aristotelian, Aristotelian school of thought, right? And so Thomas, being greatly influenced by Aristotle, um, Thomas, understanding though that Aristotle got some things wrong, takes what Aristotle got right and develops it, right? And, and, and kind of foolproofs it, if you will. 
And so uh, Luther just eventually he just grew to hate and dismissed all of philosophy as a whole, right? And that gets rid of also the analogy of, of being. And so if there's no analogy of being, there's no need for reason and revelation. So what do I mean by that? Well, so the, the analogy of being is I exist and God exists, right? But we exist in totally different ways. So there, there, for Luther, there is no analogy of being, right? We, we, that, that statement can't even be made um, because God is so far removed from us that there is no analogy of being. We would say like, well, you know, God does exist and I exist. That's, those are true thoughts, right? Um, and we participate in that divine being, if you will right? We, we exist because God wills us to exist. We, we participate in his being. Um, but for Luther, there is no analogy of being. There is no connection between the material world and the divine, right? It just doesn't, doesn't happen. And he, he threw the baby out the bathwater, right? Philosophy doesn't need it. Uh, this analogy of being doesn't need it. And, and so with that, he also throws out, like I said, all philosophical reason when it comes to reading revelation. So why is this so important? This is super important to understand. And so this is super important because um, what, what we know is that as Catholics, um, that scripture cannot be contrary to reality. can't be contrary to the truth. So for example, um, when you read in Genesis that the earth was created in seven, seven days, right? Um, as Catholics, we understand that now that we know that the earth is billions of years old, right? Because science has shown this. It's, it's almost a definitive fact that the world is billions of years old, right? And so there, you have two different kind of branches at that point, right? You can either reject science and scientism as a whole and say, nope, that's uh, some kind of trick. It's not true because the Bible says the earth is created in seven literal days. But as a Catholic, we would say, well, maybe the, that, that Genesis 1 isn't being literal, right? Maybe it's not a literal 24-hour period of time. Maybe it can be an allegory, right? Um, maybe it can be trying to tell something else. And this kind of makes sense, especially when you just go back to the text, because the sun wasn't created until like day three, right? And so even, and this is not something that's like new and modern, like Aquinas and Augustine and a bunch of church fathers didn't believe the earth was created in seven literal days. But if you're throwing all of philosophy, all of reason out the window, dismissing it offhand and saying that, no, we cannot use any of this Greekness, this Hellenistic tendencies in order to read scripture. If you throw all of that out, right, then you're left with the fact that the earth was created in seven literal days. And there are literally still Christians today that believe the earth is only like 3,000 years old or something like that, or, or 5,000 years old, or however however they computed the biblical numbers, right? And that gives Christianity a bad rap, first of all, because that's just stupid. Um, and so, in, in all fairness, too, like dogmatically speaking, the church like hasn't spoken definitively that like they know that, that the earth was not created in seven days. Technically, you could still be a Catholic in good standing with the church and say that the earth is created in seven days. I would just laugh at you, right? Um, and there's different theories on, on this. Um, a really good book, uh, kind of an entry-level book uh, for this study of this, this in particular and other covenants is called Bible Basics for Catholics. 
by John Bergsma. It's a fantastic book. Um, kind of talks about the seven days of creation and, and looking at that as a more of a covenantal uh, reality, right? Rather than seven literal days. And so Luther, being formed in this nominalist school of thought, um, kind of breaks away with other nominalists, right? So not, not all other nominalists kind of took things this far because nominalism is still a type of philosophy. But Luther just re rejects all of philosophy, rejects Aristotle, rejects all of this quote-unquote human reason offhand, right? And so, but he's still like a Catholic at this point, right? He just rejected this type of, of thought, right? And then as a Catholic, you can reject philosophy and that's fine. Um, I wouldn't, but you can. Um, but anyway, so he eventually makes his way back home and there's this famous story of the vow of Luther. So what happens is he gets caught in this storm on the way home and he's so terrified by this storm that's thundering, right? And he prays this literal prayer. Literally, this is word for word. Help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. That's his prayer. Help me, St. Anne, it's the mother of Mary, I will become a monk. And sure enough, he survives the storm. Shocker. And he enters the Hermits of St. Augustine. Um, and so he he's, becomes an Augustinian monk. And he gets sent to continue his studies at Wittenberg. Um, and he gets his doctorate in theology, right? And he continues to study theology. He continues to study the word. And he's formed in this Augustinian school of thought as well. So you have nominalism on one hand, you have Augustinian, uh, Augustinian schools of thought, which is kind of platonic on the other hand. Um, and then kind of behind in the, all this too, is you have Luther's struggle with a lot of things, right? Um, Luther is very scrupulous, like just personally, he's very scrupulous, right? So he he, you know, famously, there's there's stories of him going to confession, walking out, and then turning right around and trying to go again, um, you know, and, and some people relate this to he, uh, his father, um, and this is kind of debatable, but they're out there, his relationship with the father wasn't good. His father was a very harsh man, apparently, and so Luther um, viewed God the father as that way, too. So Luther really struggled with scrupulosity. He really struggled to become holy. Like he wanted to be a holy person, but he doubted his redemption because he was so scrupulous, right? Because he viewed every single small sin as, as almost unforgivable, right? God is this harsh judge just waiting to pull the lever on him. And so these all contributed to his, his, his views, right? Um, and so we're gonna get to his views in a second, but just to kind of understand also, like politically what was going on around Luther at the time. And so uh, during uh, last week or the week before, we talked a lot about the Holy Roman Empire. So understanding that uh, Charlemagne kind of quote unquote, like refounded the empire of Rome, even though he didn't, right? But the Holy Roman Empire, uh, uh, largely German, Austrian, uh, technically Italy, parts of it, right? Um, this in parts of France too, um, this Holy Roman Empire was founded um, and this guy named Frederick III was a, an elector. So the way the Holy Roman Empire was set up is you had an emperor, but this emperor was elected by this group of, this small group of princes who were electors, right? So their votes mattered a great deal. And so Frederick III, he was the prince of Saxony. So like the Saxons, right? We've heard of them. Um, and uh, so he had uh, national power in Germany, Saxony being part of Germany. Um, and then he also had 
imperial power because he was an elector, right? And so he, this is when we start seeing in the Holy Roman Empire, the imperial, the emperor, his power decreasing and the power of the electors increasing because they realize how much influence they had. And so Frederick III, um, he really started flirting with a line of ruling over the church leaders within his princedom, right? And um, be, being being able to really start telling them uh, the do's and the don'ts of what he wanted to do, not what the Pope wanted to do. We have to remember at the time too, Popes were punks around this time. Uh, papal, um, you know, scandals were were not exactly sh- uh, shocking anymore. It was kind of just almost thought of as, of course, the Pope did that. He's an awful person. Um, and so Frederick uh, was definitely, he fought with the papacy. Um, and this, this kind of, one of the things that pertains to Luther, at least, is Frederick uh, III started confiscating indulgence money, and so from the Crusades. So uh, the Turks sacked Constantinople and took that over. And Pope, uh, the Pope at the time, um, forgive me, I totally forgot his name. Um, he basically he called a crusade, right, to go reconquer Constantinople. Um, and so there was this selling of indulgences, and I think this is something that we've all heard of before, like this idea of selling of indulgences and it's not good and all these things. And it, it's not, it's no bueno. <laughs> um, and uh, what they would do is the Pope would, would say, Oh, give us X amount of money and you'll get an indulgence. And you know, your the, the temporal remission of your sins, um, you know, will be forgiven and all these things. And so just uh, a side note here, as a Catholic today, there are such still, still things as plenary indulgences, indulgences, right? We still believe in indulgences because it, it, Catholic thought is that whatever you do in this life, there are um, consequences to your actions, right? Because when you sin, it's just impossible to know how many things are affected by your sins. So there's, there's consequences to your actions that... Uh, will be kind of made up for in purgatory, essentially, right? And so indulgence is kind of like time out of purgatory, if you will. Um, I'm not like uh, I'm a biblical uh, more theologian more than a dogmatic, so I'm sure there's other people who, who can talk about this way more than better than I can. But uh, to my knowledge is um, an indulgence. You can even get a plenary indulgence like a few years ago, like the Holy Doors, right? Pope Francis opened up the Holy Doors. If you if you walk through the, the Holy Doors that he set up or the diocese set up, you prayed the certain prayers, you know, and you prayed for the Pope and you had true con- contrition for your sins and truly never wanted to sin again. You receive a plenary indulgence, which is like all of the temporal punishment for your sins would be forgiven. Um, and it's, you know, basically time off purgatory. Right. And so, but during the time of Luther, they were giving out indulgences by, by collecting money. Right. And the Pope was trying to finish St. Peter's. He was trying to send this crusade. And so Frederick would, was mad that he was seeing this money leave his princedom and going to Rome, right? So he just started confiscating it. He said, nah, I'm just going to keep this indulgence money for myself, right? Um, and so you have this, this selling of indulgences, and Luther, in all fairness, could, like renounced this. He said, no, we shouldn't be selling grace. You can't sell grace. That's a, that's a very Pelagian thing to do, right? Um, in all fairness, it's true. You can't sell grace. God's grace, God's favor cannot be bought with gold, what is gold to God? It is nothing, right? It's a piece of mineral that's shiny um, that he created, right? And so, um, but this is important though, because when Luther then 
um, he writes these 95 theses renouncing the selling of indulgences, among other things. Um, and Frederick III, because he was already at odds with, um, with the Pope, uh, became this, uh, this protector for Luther, right? Um, so Luther uh, hopped over uh, and chilled with Frederick for a while. Um, and so Luther called um, not for a reformation of morality, of pastors and bishops, right? So we have to understand that within the church, there's been a bunch of reformations, right? Um, reforms called on, I mean, think of Francis of Assisi, right? Um, but the, the the stark difference between Luther and everyone else who ever called for a reform within the church, which has happened quite a bit. Most of the awesome saints you know were reformers, right? But Luther, he didn't call for a reformation of morality of the pastors and bishops, right? But he called for a reformation of doctrine, and that's problematic, right? Because he started renouncing Catholic doctrine, right? And so um, we start seeing this play out in a lot of different ways. Um, some of the primary ways uh, being, he, you know, he started throwing out books like Maccabees, right? Because um, of his dismissal of purgatory, because purgatory for him was only there uh, in order for the church to control its people by selling indulgences, collecting money, and therefore it's not necessary because of his view of how grace worked. So next week we're going to be talking more on, um, you know, just grace in general and Luther's view of grace, the Catholic understanding of grace, looking at Romans and all these things. Um, but it's important for us, at least for now, to say that Luther's nominalism and his Augustinian Platonism, whether he would admit it or not, um, had a had a huge in influence on on his his view of grace and obviously the church's uh, abuse of selling indulgences had a view on this as well you know luther kind of rightfully accusing the pope at the time of a pelagian tendency to to buy grace right of of grace being able to of god being able to be influenced by humans right um, and, and we know that's, it's not quite, that's not true, um, that you can't buy grace, but that's what, that's literally what was happening. So that's what Luther was accusing the church of doing. And so, um, we have this, these idea of sola scriptura coming out of, of Luther starting to point to scripture as the primary place to, to prove and to back up doctrine. Um, and then, uh, we also have this idea of, uh, sola fide, uh, because this is, this is going on to his exegetical key of, of um, the promise of God, and this is going into the Romans and, and, and Galatians, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about this more next week. But um, the promise of God is essential, right? And the sacramental sign is accidental. Um, and so there's a lot more that can be said, and a lot more will be said next week. I just really want to give you a, just a very broad stroke. And if you're like listening to this and you know more about Luther's life and history than than what I said, know that there's more to Luther than everything I just said. But I wanted to kind of lay a foundation um, to kind of set up, you know, how he came to the conclusions he did when it comes to Romans, things like grace, works, righteousness, all that kind of stuff. These are really important terms for us to know as Catholics, and we're going to talk about them more next week. So thanks, as always, for tuning in to Catholics with Bibles, and we'll see you next time. God bless y'all. All right, y'all. So a little bit shorter episode today, but it's because I didn't want to get too far ahead of myself because next week we'll be rolling up our sleeves and getting into uh, some some biblical interpretive theology, some, some exegesis work on Romans and kind of going to battle with Luther and his uh, theological interpretations of things. So hopefully it doesn't suck. Hopefully I do okay. 
But anyway, we'll see you next time on Catholic Bibles, guys. God bless.